the intention was to break my neck and to kill myself. I ended up severing my my spine, shattering my arms and collapsing my my lung. It never knocked me out. I laid there, conscious, looking up at a broken window, asking God, why would you let me live? And that, gentlemen, is this week's guest, Rob Decker. After jumping out of a three-story window and wondering how in the years of child abuse and addiction and desperate searching for praise and approval in bodybuilding and with women, hadn't that already been enough hell, but there was still more. And I woke up to a back brace, external fixator on my left arm, a cast on my right arm, pain medication, tubes coming out of my neck, oxygen going through my nose, police coming in and arresting me for rape and attempted murder. Today is a story of God's redemptive power and how he takes our mess and then turns it into a message. Rob's mission is to share his story of how his failed suicide attempt led to a relationship with God. He shares the transformative power of Christ who took decades of sadness, of anger, and confusion and created a testimony of forgiveness, understanding, and love. You are listening to the Becoming Men podcast. Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Becoming Men podcast brought to you by thebecomingmen.com. I am your host, Ray De La Nuez, and this is still the podcast for men on their masculine journey, men who are wanting to grow and become better versions of themselves. Gents, did you know that this podcast is brought to you completely free because of faithful men like you have chosen to partner with us? If you have benefited from this podcast at all, I'd ask you to head over to thebecomingmen.com forward slash partner and consider becoming a financial supporter of this men's ministry with as little as $5. Again, that's thebecomingmen.com forward slash partner. Go ahead and put your headphones in, put your phone in your pocket and enjoy my conversation with Rob Decker. I was probably about four or five when I had my first beer. I went to a neighbor's house. My dad was there hanging out with his, with our neighbor and, you know, they offered me a beer. And even though it was years later that I didn't have another beer, the moment that I started drinking, what it allowed for me to do was to numb all the emotional trauma, um, the childhood experiences in my head and my life, the way that I felt about myself, the insecurities, I was able to drown all that out. So what I'll do is I'll do like a quick rundown of my childhood. Um, when I was in kindergarten, I found out that my dad wasn't my biological father. And I think that did a huge number on me over the next few years. I watched the interaction between my mom and my dad. Um, it was very toxic. The, the only reason they got married was because my dad got my mom pregnant. So, you know, I'm going to continue to refer to my dad as my dad. He did raise me at five years old, or uh, I'm sorry, from six months old. Uh, he's dad. He raised me. He took care of me. You know, he's dad. Yeah. Um, but I watched the interactions between my mom and my dad. And, you know, my mom had me um, out of wedlock. Um, my mom came from a very troubling background. You know, okay. she was the oldest of five kids. She got beaten and raped and she ran away from home. So my mom was a very troubled young lady. And, um, my dad ended up getting my mom pregnant and, you know, had my sister. And so you had these two individuals that were very young, had a bunch of their own dysfunction and it was very relevant 
Uh, it was very obvious in, in the way that they treated each other in the house. At a very young age, I watched the violence, the cops always coming to the house, the parties, the drug use, the cigarettes, the alcohol constantly. I mean, it was just constant. Um, by the time I was a freshman in high school, I had um, I had experimented with alcohol, you know, on my own. And I remember waking up the next day and feeling like trash, man. It felt like I got hit by a train. Yeah. But the cool part was I didn't have to think about anything that was going on at home. And so I think that spiraled quickly. You know, by the time I was 16 years old, you know, I guarantee you I was a pretty much a full time, full blown alcoholic. And then I got introduced to marijuana, which led into shrooms and acid. Um eventually ecstasy. And the, the one that got me, the one that owned me was cocaine. You know, by the time I was in my early twenties is when I experimented with cocaine and that one just grabbed a hold of me. Um, so all through high school, all through my early twenties, you know, it was just party, 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 party. Um, I was in and out of so many relationships, you know, I didn't understand love and trust and I was very insecure and very jealous. Yeah. That, makes uh, sense. that was just a lot of stuff that I witnessed. You know, yeah. um, we do learn love and trust from our parents. And when we don't see them um, doing that, well, then we got to try to figure it out, you know. And and plus, there was like a lot of unanswered questions in my heart and in my head of my value in this life. Yeah. You know, I didn't feel like I was valued. And so um, I took advantage of a lot of situations, especially when it came to women. Um, fortunately, I was a good, good, good looking enough guy. To be Still a good looking dude. Yeah. Thanks, bro. I mean, you have to yourself, <laughs> my man. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and I, and I think that um, I totally took advantage of that. You know, I was um, I've always been very outgoing, very talkative, um, very charming. So I was able to talk my way in and out of a lot of stuff. And a lot of that was relationships. And um, I heard a lot of people on that, yeah. on that path, you know, um, by the time I was 29 years old, I met, I met my match. I met this young lady. She was a lot younger. She was probably like, I don't know, 19, 20 years old. She worked at a bank. And at the time I was uh, dealing drugs. I was selling uh, steroids and human growth hormone. I was working for a gym and I, I became that guy. I became yeah. the guy that took everybody up. And so I went to go cash a check at the the bank. And I met this young lady. I actually drove another woman's car there. I was seeing another female and I'm over here getting digits. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much, I'll say this. My wife is the only woman I've ever been faithful to. Yeah. Uh, you know, the crazy thing is I'd be cheating in my relationships. And if I found out that the woman may be looking somewhere else or there may be another guy, dude, I'd lose it. Be super offended. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Like who irrationally. Are you? <laughs> like who are you? You can't girl? reject me. Yeah. <laughs> like I I am the only one you want. Right. Because oh, yeah, that's all because that's what I was dealing with was rejection, right? This this yeah. deep seated spirit of rejection that was established at a very young age in my life. You know, when I found out my dad wasn't my real dad, that's rejection. Yeah, when my mom time. kept when my mom kept trying to push me out of the house because she didn't want to see the way my dad treated me, I took that as rejection. I didn't take that as her trying to protect me because she didn't want me in trouble or getting hit. You know what I'm saying? Um, 
and so I took all that stuff as, as rejection. And so, and I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense being able, first of all, to look back at yourself and see the age that you were at, right. Those formative years and the need that was there, which is inside of every single man, right. The need for a close relationship and then the need to, I mean, prove yourself, right. Yeah. That's that in the wrong environment, in the wrong Petri dish is mm-hmm. a great experiment for disaster. Well, you know, and, and I'm, I don't share things about my dad to bash my dad. He had his own stuff in this world. And, um, you know, he only, he knew what he knew. Um, you know, he portrayed whatever childhood stuff he had been through on me. Um, probably the struggle with that. I wasn't his legitimate child, you know, and I'm sure that kind of struck him off a little bit. You know, he, he would look at me and he wouldn't see him. Right. He would see another man. And that was his junk. I had to prove to him that I was a man. And how do you prove that you're a man? You sleep with a lot of women, right? I grew up in a hip hop culture. The the bulk of my friends did not look like me. And so I dressed the part and that offended my dad. You know, he saw the baggy pants and the earrings and all that kind of stuff. And um, it, it offended him and he always made comments about it. So I had to go into this world and prove that's not who I was on top of that. When I was very young, I was molested by a neighborhood kid, that neighborhood kid's dad and my dad were friends, but there was no way I could tell my dad what had happened to me. Cause I feared my dad for those responses. And so I spent most of my life trying to, prove to myself, um, and disguise the fact that that ever happened to me, um, by sleeping around. You had that idea in your head that you actually needed to go out and sleep with a bunch of women because that's what, you know, that's what guys do. I mean, maybe you didn't even see your dad doing that, but that's just what you thought. Well, in my case, like that's what I saw my dad do, or that's what I knew my dad was doing. Like I have 11 brothers and sisters. Uh, that's with six different women. Um, and those are just the ones that he impregnated. Right. And, I, and, and then, but then when you look a little bit down the generational pipeline, you find that his dad did the same exact thing to him. And I wonder if my great, great grandfather did the same exact thing to him. Um, and yeah, man, it's true. It's a, it's one of those lies. It's the, the hundred dollar bill um, that Satan tries to come in and falsify and counterfeit. The whole generational curses it all being passed down. It, it truly does get passed down. I mean, trust me, breaking the cycle is a beast of its own. You yeah. know, you're up against some serious stuff, which hey, I've totally embraced it and it's been a lot of work, but well worth it. Cause God is good. Um, but even knowing like when I was 16, 17 years old, my dad coming home with his girlfriend who he left my mom for, and he's bringing her into the home. So like I knew dad was a player. Mm. Um, I, I, I found out later that my his dad, my grandfather tried to hit on my mom, you know? So, um, I also understand that my grandpa raped my grandma and my dad was a product of that. So imagine this man dealing with all that stuff, knowing that about his father and all that stuff that's been passed down to him. And so, you know, when I was able to move on in this life, I had to understand who my parents were as people. And I had to forgive them because I know that they had been through similar stuff that I had been through. It's just that they didn't give it to God where I was yeah. like, man, we need, we need to fix this. And so, um, well, we're going to jump back into, uh, 
the young lady that I met at the bank. Yeah, you were 29. So this young lady, um, right out the gate, I knew it was a really bad, bad relationship. Um, I knew it was something I shouldn't get got involved in. Well, you know, her and I had a couple of real uh, heart to heart conversations. And even though she didn't completely divulge certain things, what it sounded like was um, her brother had been molested and something had happened to her um, from her father. And and she was watching pornography at a really young age. So she was sexual. She was hit sexually at a really, really young age by a grown man. Um, and those were kind of like the things that I pulled out of those initial conversations. So I knew I was up against some really crazy stuff, but my life had been in such a chaotic place that it almost stimulated me in order to, um, kind of pursue this relationship. It's just like, you know, when you have one beer and you get that buzz, you're like, man, this is amazing. You go down that path long enough, man, you're ripping through a bottle of vodka and two forties of steel reserve, you know? And that's how my relationship with women was. It's like, you know, something that started off that seems so innocent finally got down into a path where I was willing to date this younger woman who had all these daddy issues that possibly was molested and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and I was willing to embrace that because there was some form of stimulation there for me. Um, eventually she accused me of rape and attempted murder. And, um, at that point in my life, I was so far gone off drugs and alcohol. I wasn't working. I mean, that gym job that I had, I I lost. Um, And working, I wasn't working a real job. I was slanging a little bit on the side with the steroids and the human growth hormone and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't have my license. I, I didn't really have much going for me. And she had taken a trip to Hawaii. So part of our story, her and I, was things got crazy really quick in our relationship. So we had to break up. Well, during that breakup, I went and got saved. I had a, a, a buddy who kept trying to get me to church and believing in Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And like, I was like, yo dude, that's cool. It works for you. I'm, I'm good. Um, but eventually I came to a place where I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Went to a Bible study, got saved, started pursuing the Lord. Well, she had fallen off and started escorting. And, um, when I found out about it, I was like, I still cared enough about her to be like, ah, I don't want you doing that stuff. That's just like, that's horrible. Um, and you know, the deal was her and I were going to try to work some stuff out, even though I knew that was a bad idea. And while she was in Hawaii on a trip with one of her Johns, uh, she sent me some pictures and some texts basically, uh, in a roundabout way saying that she got raped and beaten and ridiculed and, uh, humiliated while she was in Hawaii. So she wanted to come home and patch things up with me. Well, when she came to pick me up, I'd have been drinking that day. Uh, we stopped off at the liquor store went back to her pad, got into a conversation and it was just overwhelming, man. I was intoxicated. I was overwhelmed with what happened to her in Hawaii. Her and I were already in a pretty choppy relationship And there was just so much going on and we got into an argument. I went downstairs to get some rest and I woke up to a banging at the door and it was the police department. And she came downstairs and I asked what was going on. And she told me that I I 
called them and told them that you raped me and tried to kill me. And in that moment, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I can't live this way. It's just, I was scared. I felt betrayed. I was confused. And suicide was something that I had struggled with for a long time in my life. Um, I always felt like the drugs and the alcohol were going to kill me. Um, at some point I was just going to wake up and, or not wake up. Right. Um, when I was a young man, I used to cut my, my forms, right. I just, I was a cutter. And, uh, in this moment, it was just like that perfect storm of event events of like, you know, this is it for me. And so I looked at her and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I ran headfirst out of a closed third story loft window, supermaned it, broke through that window, uh, on my way down, my foot clipped an awning, changed my fall. The intention was to break my neck and to kill myself. And, um, I ended up severing my, my spine, shattering my arms and collapsing my, my lung. And, uh, it never knocked me out. What? I just, yeah. You laid there. I laid there looking up broken. Yeah. Conscious looking up at a broken window, asking God, why would you let me live? Why? Um, yeah, I remember the, the ambulance getting there. Um, throw me on the gurney. I remember part of the hospital ride, uh, the ambulance ride. And I remember just waiting for my turn to have surgery and the amount of pain that I was in. I mean, it was a ridiculous amount of pain. I was on my side. I could barely breathe. Um, I didn't know I had collapsed along. I know I'd broken a bunch of stuff, but I woke up in the morning after a 10 minute or 10, 10 hour surgery. And I woke up to a back brace, external fixator on my left arm, a cast on my right arm, pain medication, tubes coming out of my neck, oxygen going through my nose, all those sticky pads they love to throw on your chest to check, to make sure that your heart's still beating. Um, a catheter. I mean, I was a mess, man. And wow. to wake up, to wake up to the police coming and arresting me for rape <laughs> and attempted murder because I was a flight risk. They felt yeah, like you were going to leave. <laughs> Right. I was going to, I was going to get up and go, bro. So, yeah, but that that, right there in that moment, if you, if you can look back, like what, if any emotions were, were going on, was there remorse, regret? Was there just fear, doubt? Was there questions? I, I, well, I, I wondered why I lived, um, why I, I got to survive. Uh, that was one of the big ones. Um, and, and I, I don't know. I mean, I was highly medicated and everything was so surreal at that point, um, with everything going on, I, I knew that I wasn't going anywhere for a while. Um, but to, to think about, man, I've done some rotten stuff in my life, man, but to be accused of something like that, um, man, I was a dog. I ain't going to lie. I was a dog, but I, I manipulated more than I would ever force myself on somebody. And so, you know, to be accused of some, especially with someone you really, I I still cared about her. Right. I mean, I I cared about her. Um, and to be accused of that. And, and I mean, to think about rape and murder charges. Um, so I'm thinking about prison. I'm thinking about, am I ever going to walk again? Um, you know, the hospital bills, all of it. I mean, it was, it was so, it was so insane. And I remember I had 24 hour surveillance. One of the police 
you know, he, he didn't want to be there. I could tell he didn't like me at all. He had my case, he had a folder and, you know, he was reaming me. He's like, you know, Mr. Decker, these are some serious charges. And he was giving me a hard, hard time about what it was going to be like for me in prison. Um, I mean, it was brutal. And, and I, I looked at him and I told him, I said, you know, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, but that's not something I would ever do, sir. And I just broke down crying and a nurse walked in to calm me down. And as the nurse was leaving, uh, guess who shows up to the hospital and the cop looks over and he goes, is that who I think that is? And she was in a disguise, man. She got a weave. She had her sunglasses on. She brought her sister. She had a folder in her hand. And ultimately she wanted to see what was going on more than anything. And you know, the officer just, his whole demeanor just changed. And he goes, well, that doesn't make sense. Right. Like why would she come see you? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So she walked, he walked her out and that was the last time I ever saw her. She did on a later occasion, try to text me asking me, I heard you're never going to walk again. Um, but I never responded to the text. You know, so yeah, so I just I laid in I laid in bed, man. Um I laid in bed all broken and shattered and um I just started talking to God um shortly after that. It was later that night or the next night, and uh I asked him what we were gonna do, what's gonna happen from here. And all of a sudden this calm came over me, this peace. And if you've ever spent time in a hospital with all the the machines and the lights and the intercoms and the constant traffic with the nurses and the doctors, you know, it's, it's chaos. It's just, it's busyness. It's not and, peace. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no peace. And, and I got peace. I got peace for a moment. I, I heard this very clear voice all through the, the, the morphine <laughs> that the charges will be dropped. Your bills will be paid and you will walk again. And, uh, Shortly after that, uh, one of the officers that was watching me told me that they were going to come in and drop the charges. Um, after that happened, after they, they dropped the charges on me, I was able to have visitors. And my first visitor was, since I was a ward of the state or the county, I wasn't allowed to have visitors. I was basically a prisoner. Um, my mom was my first visitor. And I remember looking at her in the hallway and she was, she was balling, man. I mean, I know what the doctors had just told her and she comes in and I'm asking her and, uh, she's just like, everything's going to be okay, son. And we all knew, we all knew what was going on. And she looked at me in the most sincerest. And my mom and I had a very choppy relationship. I mean, it was yeah. at best. It was choppy. My last conversation with my mom was F you. I hate you. That was my last conversation before I jumped out of that window. Um, And my mom looked at me and she said, I wish everything had ended that day for you. And I completely embraced that. I felt like that was her way of telling me that she really loved me. She just didn't want to see me suffer anymore. She saw 29 years of drinking and using and relationships and, you know, my relationship with my dad. And, um, and I know she had her own pains, man. She wanted some pain to end too. And, um, shortly after she told me that the nurses walk in and they're like, we're going to try to get you up. 
And I knew for a fact, I mean, I couldn't even sit up, man. I couldn't use the bathroom for my, there was nothing. I, you know, I had to have people shaving my neck, um, shaving my face. Um, but I knew that I had to try for my mom to try to get up and the nurses went to get me up, man. And I squealed and it felt like my spine ripped through my, my mm. oblique and they, they, they jammed, um, morphine in my neck and set me back down. And they were just like, yeah, it's not happening. And a neurosurgeon comes in and is like, Hey, we're going to perform another surgery. And, uh, they did, they performed another surgery. And when they came in to get me to attempt to walk, I was able to sit at the edge of my bed and I was able to get on both of my feet where before I couldn't even sit up on my own. And they walked me out into the hallway. Um, well, I dragged my foot into the hallway while I could walk pretty well on one side, but the left side of my body took a real beating. Uh, from that fall hitting concrete yeah, and I was able to drag my foot. And so at that point I knew that I was going to walk again. It's just that that process was going to be a very, very long process because I was a physical mess. I was an emotional mess. Um, you know, you're giving an addict pain medication. You know, my whole thing is I didn't want to feel Right. I don't want to feel anything emotionally or mentally. I don't want to feel anything physically. I just don't want to feel. And so I spent the next four years for the most part teaching myself how to move well again because physical therapy had pretty much given up on me. Um, I wasn't able to do much in physical therapy, but I was highly medicated and I had to get off all the pain meds. Um, in order to live somewhat of a decent life. And I knew like, I knew there was purpose for my life. I knew there was God, let me live for a reason. Charges have been dropped. I'm walking again, you know, $2 million worth of hospital bills. I never had to pay a lick. I didn't have to pay a penny. Wow, um, all that, all that was covered, man. But I spent the next four to five years rehabilitating myself, getting back in the gym my, on my own, um, riding my bike to all my doctor's appointments because I realized that movement was life, that the only way that I was going to beat this thing was to keep moving and to get stronger. And fortunately, because I was an athlete and a, a fitness buff, right, I knew the importance of muscle and strength. And so you know, ultimately I totally, this is what I believe with my whole heart. God didn't push me out that window that night, but he knew I was going to do it in order for him to reach me. I had to be broken and taken out of this world so that he could address my heart issues because that's, those were my issues, me drowning and medicating and drugs and alcohol and even fitness was it was all medication, man. It was me not being able to deal with my childhood, my relationship with my parents, my inability to, to have value for myself. And God had to do a powerful work in me. And so I spent the next four or five years serving him, reading the word, going to church and getting back into the gym. And yeah. eventually I got off all the drugs, all the alcohol, everything, man. You know, I, I, as you said that I see a vessel, right. A, a vase, um, just being slammed down on the ground, something that you didn't think had much worth slammed it down. And God had the desire 
to take it all and put it back together the way that he wanted it to be. Yes. Right. Yes. So maybe, maybe it was a vessel you were using for one thing, but he's like, no, 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 no. You had it all wrong from the beginning. This is how it was supposed to look. And just piecing it back together piece by piece patiently and looking for all the pieces, making sure that nothing was missed. I would have to agree with that statement. I think that God had given me some incredible gifts in this life and I abused those gifts and I used them for my own selfish desires. And he's like, that's not why I created you. That's not what this is about. That's not what this is for. And so he had to, you know, he had to put me through that, that refining process. And it's been a process. I mean, I've been saved, what, 15 years. I've been walking 15 years. It's 14 years ago in May is when, um, I jumped out of that window. And the reality was, is I, I asked him into my life maybe three months before I jumped out of that window. Mm. So it's all been quite a process and all that happened in Northern California, jumping out of the window. Then I met my wife to be in, in, um, Northern California. And I, I still struggled with the bottle when I first met her, I still used. So even though God was building me, refining me, showing me purpose for my life. Like, I mean, here's the thing. I went from a guy that, you know, was 215 pounds of solid muscle to 155 pounds in the hospital was told that I was never going to walk again. I was facing rape and murder charges. Like, well, he took me out of the depths of hell (laughs) And he gave me my life back and I was still messing with the alcohol as a form of medication because there were certain areas in my life that I was stressing on that I couldn't deal with that. I wasn't handing over to him. And, um, I would pray about it, man. I would hit that bottle and I would know that it was a bad idea. And I would ask God to help me, even though he's already done all this, he's already helped me so much, but you're going to have to, you're going to have to bail me out of this alcohol problem. And he introduced me to my wife and nine months into our relationship, I got behind the wheel of her car. I'm telling you, man, I can't stress enough how big of an idiot I was to, you know, (laughs) to even be hitting the bottle and driving after everything I'd already been through and everything I came out and God still bestowed grace on me. And he bailed me out of that situation. And when I fled the scene of the crime and I hid under someone's house after running through a Creek and got all bloody and wet, and I was under that house all night long, I'm begging and pleading God to bail me out of this situation. And in that moment, I apologized to him for drinking. And I think that's when true repentance settled in. I really, in that moment, understood his grace and his love in my life. And I was like, I don't need the alcohol. I have you. And from that moment on, I've never drank a sip of alcohol ever again. And I truly believe that was true repentance is understanding his love and his grace. And I was pushing the envelope. I was testing him and testing him, testing him. And uh, I'm like, I'm done testing you here. I'm done. You've done so much for me and I'm so sorry. And uh, yeah. So it's been almost 10 years since I've hit the bottle. Amen. Congrats. Thank you, my man. Yeah, that that's that's my God. That's that's our God. <laughs> right? right. Just so patient, man. You know, yeah. I think a lot of times uh young boys can get uh mislabeled as being disobedient or being uh, you know, just knuckleheads. But all we really like, we're just looking sometimes for 
that revalidation that we're still like worth the patience. We're still worth, we're still worthy of love. Even when we, you know, kick our sister in the shin and pull a pigtail and throw dirt in somebody's eyes, you know? Yeah. We, you know, I, I needed a lot of validation because I don't feel like I got a lot of it as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I believe that a lot of young men struggle with that need for validation and, in turn, we become very performance driven and we're always trying to prove something. And we want, you know, we want to, we want to puff our chest for everybody because we find our value in that. And the reality is, is once you get kudos or accolades in one area, it's still not enough because you still need that validation. And I, f- I feel like my walk with God has validated me because I know who I am in Christ. Um, but along with that, you know, forgiveness, forgiveness is huge. You know, you can't grow without forgiveness. And, and I look at both of my parents and, and when I got out of that hospital, I was living with my mom and I just remember her walking in the door one day and I broke down crying because I realized this is my mom. This is who God gave me. Right. And that's when my mom told me her childhood. That's when she told me my dad's childhood. And I realized, man, they were just as messed up as me. And, um, I needed to forgive them. Um, because they just didn't know better, man. I mean, I just felt like they didn't know better and, and they deserve the grace and the forgiveness as well. And so, you know, that grace and that forgiveness was great for my healing so that I could take it to the next level so that I could not only help others, but heal from the deepest depths of my soul when it comes to, um, not only generational curses, but what you've been, you know, I mean, it goes deep, right? It goes those generational curses and then into your childhood and all that stuff is poured onto you. And, um, but forgiveness has been that big, um, that big relief for me. Yeah. We definitely undervalue that. We, we sometimes look at our salvation as something that's like, okay, well, I said yes to the Lord. Um, I said no to some bad habits. I stopped watching porn. I stopped, uh, you know, flirting with women at work. I stopped drinking. Um, that's all I needed. Right. Right. You did the right acts. Uh, you said the words and stopped doing a few things, but it's like, no, dude, I definitely think that we undervalue the, the importance of forgiveness, going through the forgiveness process. And another thing you said, man, learning our identities in Christ and how important that is to understanding where we're supposed to be, who we're called to be, the lies that we were buying into before and how they can, if not taken care of, can come right back into a very healthy relationship or a very healthy situation that came out of nowhere. Well, I, I agree hundred percent. You know, I think what happens is, is a lot of us stay attached to the, the lies that we believed as children, um, not being valuable, um, not being lovable, you know, maybe being called some pretty bad names. Um, and a lot of that stuff stays attached to you. And that's just believing the lie. You know, here's, here's, here's a great one. Here's a great lie. Well, your parents are both al- alcoholics and runs in your family. So, you know, you're pretty much going to be an alcoholic, right? Well, no, I mean, I agreed with that at one point, right? I did agree with that. Well, that's who they are. Correct. Or that's what they do. Um, and that just justified my behavior. But the reality is, is that that's not who God created me to be. Those are That's sins. Right. And he's relieved me of those sins. Hey, let's break you free. So, you know, I've been sober for almost 10 years and 
you know, I, I know that there are certain arenas where you have to label yourself certain things when you're part of a support group, um, you know, in no shape, form or fashion, will I ever call myself an alcoholic or an addict, right? Because I'm staying attached to a sin or I'm staying attached to a lie about myself, right? I am free from those sins. Those were my sins. Because when you start labeling yourself, God didn't create me to be an addict or an alcoholic. That's not what he had created me to be. So I'm not going to stay attached to those things. And I've heard my friends say, well, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. Well, no, you are, you are not. Like I refuse to buy into that because I believe there's a form of bondage that comes with that. You're staying attached to something. Why do you want to be attached to that? No, you're, you're victorious. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're a child of the most high God, right? You're covered. You're righteous. You're covered in his blood. So why do you want to stay attached to these negative titles, right? There's no need for any of that stuff, you know, um, and kudos to those that are in those groups and, you know, they, they help other people and they sponsor and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it was like, man, how could I even stay attached to something? God is the deliverer. He is the healer uh, who the sun sets free is free indeed, right? I am a new creation in Christ. So why am I going to stay attached to my past like that? I, I'm not, right? And I think a lot of times we get diagnosed with stuff and we stay attached to all those diagnoses, right? Mm. Um, when I was in the hospital, oh, you're bipolar, right? Well, I could stay attached to being bipolar. I could, right? Um, I wasn't bipolar. I was a, a troubled individual that struggled in a sin and it got worse when I used substance and drank and I became two different people. I was very unstable. I was double-minded, bipolar. I was double-minded. Um, and God freed me of those things. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so I think we have to be careful what we stay attached to in this life. I'm not saying everyone hop off your medication or run away from these groups or those communities. What I'm saying is that there's a lot of freedom in him. Um, you just have to believe it's there. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's just pointing to the importance of our words, our own declarations, which we make when we say, I will always struggle with this. I mm-hmm. will always be this, or, you know, this is just what my family always did. So self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Self-fulfilling. Exactly. Right. But here's the thing. God has called us to be chain breakers. He has called us to be victorious and to lead. Um, we can be free from all that stuff, man. And not to say it's just, you know, with some stuff, it could be in a moment, other stuff, it could be a work in progress, Yeah, you know, but I don't believe um, that he wants us to stay attached to all that at all. True. You know, me and you had some similarities in in our stories and uh, there's something that I have dealt with um, for a long time, even after I walked away from that lifestyle. And that was the shame of it all. So even though like God was speaking through me, working through me, I had deep, intimate relationship with God, I would still look back at my past and cringe um, and, and feel like legitimate, like manifestations of shame 
for what had happened. Um, so I had separated myself from the actions, but the actions still remained somewhere, maybe, you know, in the corner closet. Um, have you ever, you know, had to deal with something like that? And if so, how did you deal with it? What have you done with it? Um, so shame, you know, shame probably goes right there along with the rejection stuff. Right. Um, and uh, it's one of those deep seated spirits, you know, um, for me, it was just realizing that I was acting out of my own insecurity, my own lack of worth and lack of value. Um, I wasn't actively pursuing the Lord the way that I was. I understand that everything is a process, that the enemy is going to remind me, people are going to remind me, I'm going to remind me of um, some of the foulness that has taken place in my life. But I just know that's not who I am. And so you know, there was some of it, especially with the way that I treated women. Um, I hurt a lot of really good. I mean, a lot of really good people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there was some shame in that, but what I realized was that God has forgiven me for that. Um, and so that I need to forgive myself. And if I can't forgive myself, well, then, you know, what kind of bondage am I holding on to, you know, and how is that going to impact my relationship with my wife or how is that going to help me work with youth that is struggling with rejection or shame, right? I want to be able to be free of those things so that I can guide people on how to get free from it themselves. So I think that in the growing process, I dealt with those feelings, but you know, at the end of the day, now it's like there's bigger fish to fry mm. or there's, or there's uh we got to lead some men to the fish. We got to make fisher and men, right? Amen. <laughs> so, yeah. um, it's all a process, man. And we're all different places in our journey and, and you can't go wrong with seeking God's will for your life. Yeah. You know, uh, I'll say this when I'm in his will, I'm not going to say it's not challenging because it may go against my flesh, <laughs> but it's so much more gratifying. It's so much more worth it. Like as a man, I was able to do so much and get my way um, based on my own abilities. But when you allow God to do it, those doors that open were doors that I couldn't create. Those were doors and windows that I couldn't open. Right. It was all so actively pursuing him and knowing that he has forgiven you for those decisions and choices that you made. You can forgive yourself of that shame um, and that guilt and the condemnation. I mean, Again, the enemy is going to come in, your own thoughts are going to come in and, um, people are going to be used to, um, to destroy the person that you're becoming in him. Yeah. So, man, I'm so grateful for you just sharing your story and being able to, to point to the transformative, uh, power that is in Jesus. Um, the resurrecting spirit that filled Jesus is, is what's inside of us and what's renewing our mind, what's bringing us and drawing us closer to the Lord. Um, what's breaking off those chains and, and breaking off the, the generational curses, the shame. Um, so I'm, I'm just so grateful for that. Well, Can, you know, uh, you, 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 uh, you know, uh, you said something, you know, you were saying, well, I quit doing this. I quit doing that. I quit doing this. So, you know, to have this works mentality, like, you know, I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing that. I got to stop. 
But the reality is this, man. Um, Christ transforms. That's what there's. There's a transformation that takes place to where those things aren't an issue. You don't do them because it's just not really there anymore. You're like, eh, oh, it's past. It's done. It's like, you know, and um, it's one thing to get into this works based mindset, which is what religion really is. Ultimately, it's earning my way to heaven or earning God's love for me, which we all know what was done on the cross and you can't do that. So, um, you know, the transformational power that he has is resurrection power, right? He will resurrect something inside of you. He will, uh, he will renew, he will build, um, he will do amazing things, uh, with you if you allow him to do so, but it's all transformation. I mean, he will transform. I mean, I've, um, I don't know how true this is, but I remember watching a video of Jeffrey Dahmer and I'm sure, I don't know if your audience knows who that is. Just Google it pretty rotten stuff, but um, he did some pretty volatile things. Well, I watched an interview right before he was killed in prison. And he said that he had received the Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. And that if that's what he had had in his life growing up, he probably wouldn't have done the things that he did. I have to believe that he believed that and he wasn't faking it. I believe that God loves us so much that if you truly repented for the most heinous stuff that you've done, you, God will forgive you. He will transform you, form you and he'll make you in the image of his son. Um, shortly after that, Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison, but that's probably because someone was just trying to earn stripes. But the reality is, is if he had truly given his life to Christ, well, we're going to see him in heaven, man. Yeah. You know, and so if he could take someone like that and change their heart, he can do that for any of us. Yeah. Yeah. We have a way of disqualifying ourselves. Like, yeah, that, that guy in church who shared his testimony today, like, yeah, it makes sense that God would do that for him. He's a holy guy and he probably reads his Bible like three times a day, but not me. My, my Bible has uh, dust on it. Um, and I told him I'd stop watching porn, but I, here I am doing it again. Um, I'm doing it again and again and again. So definitely he, he's ran out of patience with me. Uh, he's a pretty patient guy, man. I, I watched him, you know, carry me through some really bad stuff. Um, you know, and here I am 15 years into it and he's still doing some work in my heart. I mean, yeah, I get to help people. You know, I'm an addiction recovery coach. I'm a health and fitness coach. I work with the at-risk youth. I'm a father. I'm a t-ball coach. You know, I have a recovery softball team. I got all these amazing things where I can give back to people and, and, and do things for my community, but there's still work that he's doing. I'm not polished. I don't read my Bible three times a day. I do try to get in some every single day, but you know, even when it comes to reading scripture, your flesh wants to come up against that. You know, um, it's the spirit that yearns for it, but there is a battle. There's a battle that is taking place within you and around you. And so it doesn't surprise me when people struggle to get into scripture and, um, start to, to beat themselves down. You know what I'm saying? Like there is a true battle for your soul. There's two, there's two destinations here, right. And both those individuals that 
lead those destinations want you there. Right. And so you have to embrace that and understand that. Um, I choose to take the high road, literally. <laughs> that's, where, that's where I want to be. Um, but in the meantime, it's like, you know, I don't do this to go to heaven. I do this because this pleases God and I want to be able to give back and I want to see people transform and I want to see people led to Christ and I want to see people healed. I want to see people have the same transformation that took place in me um, just by hearing my story, because um, sometimes that's what it takes. That takes hearing another person's story to be like, you know what, man, if, and here's the thing. Yeah. I've been through some crazy stuff and we barely scratched the surface with some of the stuff I've been through. But if he's willing to do that for me, he's going to do that for anybody. Um, you know, just because maybe your story is not as worse as, sorry, is as bad as mine in your mind. Um, I don't get to judge you for your trauma and your personal experiences. Um, we all approach things differently. We all handle things different. We process things different. You know, you can get in a car accident and shake it off. I could get in a car accident and it's traumatizing for the rest of my life. Like the way that we handle trauma is so much different. Um, so you should not judge yourself based on someone else's experiences and vice versa. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he just wants you, he loves you. He created you for a reason. He wants you to be a part of this heavenly family. You know, um, it's really simple stuff that religion has complicated. Um, and man, we have complicated those things, but he truly just, he loves you and he, he, he wants you with him. Right. Um, and it's just that, it's just that easy. Rob, how do people get a hold of you if they want to, Find out what you're doing, uh, what you got going on. Uh, if you go to robdeckerspeaks.com, that's my website. Uh, Rob Decker is my Facebook and Decker underscore Rob is my Instagram. So, you know, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of on my web page. You can um, email me from there. So Rob at robdeckerspeaks.com is my email. Now, I, I know what you guys are wondering. I know what it is. Is God really that good? And yes, 100%. And people like Rob are just prime examples of how good our God is and how awesome his transformative power is and how much he cares and he cares about the little things and, and the big things. And there's so much redemption when we give it all over to him. Guys, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Becoming Men's Podcast. Don't forget to give me a rating on iTunes and go ahead and like, subscribe, do anything that you have to do wherever you got to do it. Continue tomorrow.